Welcome, everybody. We are glad that you are with us. Welcome, everybody online. We are glad that you are with us, too. Um, thank you so much for your endurance and your faithfulness. Uh, we appreciate that. This, as we've said week after week, this won't last forever, but we appreciate your being faithful as we get through this together. Uh, what good is the church? I mean, really, what good is it? Um, when I was in graduate school of theology, I was training to be a minister. Um, we were asked to answer that question, to write about it, and to discuss it with each other. And uh, when I came to begin teaching at Oklahoma Christian, the Bible professors and I again asked that question, what good is the church? What's it for? But I, there is a new flavor to that question because of what's going on right now in our world. What good is the church? COVID-19, the pandemic, has pushed so many people into sampling church online and having to do that for safety reasons and health reasons that way more people than just seminary students and Bible professors are asking the question, well, what good is it anyway? I have to admit, this is confession time, I have to admit, when we were on pure online mode, there was, I probably shouldn't even be telling you this, there was some pleasure to being able to come and sit with my mug of coffee at my kitchen table and, you know, click on the screen to access. What good is the church? Well, the answer to that is multitudinous. A computer can't baptize you. A computer can't train you. A computer cannot hug you. A computer can't effectively rebuke you. There are tons of things that it requires a flesh and blood community to do. And that's the reason why God in his wisdom gave us to each other. There have been lots of movements to say Christianity is all about you and your personal relationship with Jesus, but they've always been uh, limping because they only have one leg. The church is essential to God's plan for a lot of reasons. In our bulletin today, there are three reasons already showing in the announcements. Reason number one Wilshire is starting a new program, the Food Bank. We're actually having a meeting about that right after worship. Is that still happening? Right after worship, uh, the Food Bank. This is something that's been in the planning stage for at least two years that I know of. It's really an important thing, and it's an important way for us to be able to be an ongoing service to our community. A computer can't do that. A church can do that. We're also doing our school supply giveaway. That's, that was actually started by university students at Wilshire over a decade ago, and it's an ongoing service that we do to our local community. 
and a parking lot pizza drive-thru. Maybe less significant, but still pretty cool that's happening Wednesday night. That's what church is good for. Let me tell you something else I think church is good for, and that relates to this sermon series that Jeremy cooked up and roped me into. Jeremy asked us to think about for these next few weeks, what are all the ways that God has come up with to get us to grow, to become the image of Christ, to take on the shape of Christ in our lives, to be more and more like Christ. And there are a lot of different ways that God has arranged so that you, as a Christian, a baptized Christian, wherever you start when you are baptized and take the name of Christ, God has several things that he wants to do in your life to help you over time look more like Jesus. But the church is one of the things that he uses to make that happen. It is essential to his plan. And so today I want to just focus on some of the things I think scripture tells us about how the church helps us turn into the body of Christ. If you've got your Bibles, where I want to spend our time today is just in 1 Corinthians. There are tons of places we could go. There always are. But today, 1 Corinthians. And uh, online, I can't see you, but in my mind, I'm watching you. So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 Paul addresses a problem. The Corinthian church was not the best church, but because it had problems, we get an insight into the things that needed to happen. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10, Paul begins to address one of the problems at the Corinthian church. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas. And another, I follow Christ. The church is not meant to be divided up into parties and factions and groups like that. And to the extent that we will open our hearts to God's will... We will let the church become the thing that helps us overcome all the pulls in our world that try to make us divide up into parties and factions and groups and divisions. You realize this is the first time we actually have denominations in the Bible. Denomination just means Divisions based on names. And it's literally divisions based on... I'm a Paul-type Christian, because Paul's the one who baptized or converted me. I'm an Apollos-type Christian, because Apollos is the one who baptized or converted me. Well, I'm a Peter-type Christian, because I come from the, the mother church in Jerusalem. And that was the basis for the divisions. 
And Paul won't have any of it. Even though some of them are loyal to him, he says, I don't want your loyalty. The killer line is verse 13. Is Christ divided? And the answer, of course, expected is no. Then you can't be divided. Was Paul crucified for you? The expected answer is no. Then you can't say you're a Paul-style Christian. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? The expected answer is no. Then you can't claim to be a Paul-style Christian or an Apollos-style Christian or a Peter-style Christian. You can't claim those things. Jesus is what the church is all about. And I don't care where you come from today in the 21st century. I don't care if you're rich or poor. I don't care if your background is religious or just totally sinful or whatever. I don't care if you are black or white. I don't care if you are educated or uneducated. I don't care about those divisions because Jesus Christ brought you into this church and blessed you with salvation. And he means for that to be your first identity. That doesn't make all those things go away. They still have an enormous impact. But the church is designed to be, from the time you accept baptism, your first loyalty. And the people that God gives you in your church become your first family. And, the, and to the extent you'll let yourself give in to that, you are able to grow to be more like Christ. You give up your loyalty to this or that thing that is calling you to say, this is what really matters. And instead you say, no, what I'm loyal to is the church of Christ. I am loyal to the church that Jesus Christ created here on earth. That's my first loyalty. And I judge everything else based on that. Okay, I could spend a long time on that, and I have actually preached whole sermons on just chapter 1. But, turn over to chapter 3. Chapter 3 is all about growth. It's all about what it takes to not be a baby, to grow up, to no longer be an infant. It starts out saying, I wish that I could give you more than what I'm able to give you, but you guys are still infants. I couldn't feed you on solid food back then. I still need to give you uh, milk because you're still divided. You're still claiming, oh, I like Paul better than I like Apollos. No, Apollos is better. And you're fighting over those kinds of things that, that human beings, mere human beings fight over. And that shows that you still haven't really grown up into the full understanding of what Christ is all about. Christ is designed to pull you away from your earthly loyalties so that everything gets more and more united as we draw closer and closer to Christ. Look down at verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation of, that this church is built on, that every congregation needs to be built on, is Jesus Christ. And if you ever detect that the Wilshire Church of Christ 
is shifting foundations to something else, then you need to move churches. I'm not joking about that. I understand that would cost me my job. My job's not worth that. The only worthwhile foundation of any church is Jesus Christ. The only thing that makes church worthwhile is that it connects you to Jesus Christ. I know that sounds really simple. I could not be more serious. And I believe it is deep and profound to take that in and to believe it. I am grateful that the people who've gone before us in this place believed in Jesus and have worked hard to build this church on the foundation of Jesus Christ. There are other churches out there that are built on that foundation. And you and I have a responsibility to continue that work which has been started here. Paul goes on, and he's talking about me. He's talking about Jeremy. He's talking about the elders. He's talking about our Bible teachers. He's talking about everybody in this church who has any role in helping to build up this church. He says this, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. We'll test the quality of each person's work. That's a little scary, Jeremy. That's a little scary, Ryan. That's a little, a little scary, Ethan. Ruthie, I can't see Ruthie. I don't know if she's here, but that's a, yeah, that's a little scary, Ruthie. You know, anybody who's got any leadership, God plans to test your work. Jim, God is going to test my work. And what's the test? The test is whether what I labored at was in service of something worthy, gold. Silver, precious stones, or whether it was in service of something that just cannot stand the test of God's judgment. There are tons of calls for church leaders to chase after all kinds of things. Chase after the approval of the world, chase after the appearance of you know, worldly success, Chase after this or that or the other political agenda. There are all kinds of things that the world is called, calling on the church. Make yourself useful, church. I'm going to tell you something. One of Paul's themes in 1 Corinthians, if you go back and read starting in verse 17 of chapter 1, one of Paul's themes in 1 Corinthians is... Don't trust the world's vision of what's useful. They got it wrong about Jesus. They constantly get it wrong about what God's wisdom really amounts to. The church is actually the real source of wisdom in the world. 
And so let the church be the church. Let the church proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so when I stand before God and his judgment, I know that what I, all of my preaching will be judged based on how much I got across the story of Jesus Christ and him crucified. How much I helped you to get connected to Jesus Christ and him crucified. Ruthie, when you stand before God, your Bible classes and the ones you helped to organize, that's the way they'll be judged. And Ethan, when you stand before, that's the way you're singing and song leading will be judged. All of us, whatever leadership we exercise, that's how it will be judged. How much did it build on that foundation? Jesus Christ and him crucified. The amazing thing is that if I give myself to that, if I give myself to that pursuit, if I believe that what the church is about is the key to living a wise life and to being a wise person, if I give myself to that, then bit by bit and step by step, I, my life starts to resemble the life of Jesus Christ in the world. If I give myself to that ministry, then in return, my life starts to change. It can't help but change. A passage we didn't have time to read uh, for our scripture readings, but I want us to look at, turning your Bibles over to chapter 8. Chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians. There were so many issues that Paul had to address in the Corinthian church. So many things he had to deal with. And this is just one of them. What do you do about food sacrificed to idols? The reason why this was an issue uh, is deep and gnarly, but it has to do with first century culture. Gentiles who were converted into Christianity had lived their whole life truly believing in the power of Zeus and Aphrodite and Ares and all of the other pantheons. They'd, they'd grown up afraid or devoted to those gods. And they were grateful to come out of that and into the light of the one true God and his son Jesus Christ. But at the same time, they still had a fear and an awe of those pagan practices, those pagan sacrifices. And so it was, there was a question as to what exactly we should do about food sacrificed to idol. This led to a division among Christians. People are in dispute about who was on which side. But... Suffice it to say, there were Christians who said, look, if there's even a chance that a bit of food, some grain or some meat has been sacrificed or been involved in any way with idol worship, then I can't eat it and you shouldn't either. And there were churches that were teaching that. 
in the first century. And there were other churches who said more what Paul ends up saying, which is, no, there's only one God and food doesn't do anything, which is actually the correct doctrine. That's the doctrine that Jesus taught. Food by itself can't make you clean or unclean. And Paul believes that's the correct doctrine, that food is just food. It can't make you clean or unclean. But he makes an extraordinary step. He knows that in the Corinthian church, there are people who hold both of those views. That it is sinful to eat this food if it's got even the taint of idolatry on it of any kind. And others who say, no, it doesn't matter. It's just food. If you give thanks to God, it's God's food. And he says, here's what I want you to do about that. Chapter one, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. If you're in Christ, you possess some knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. I have tried for most of my life to make those last few words of verse 1 a motto in my life. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Because, you know, I'm a scholar. I went to school. I ended up getting a PhD. Knowledge is a pretty big thing for me. And I know how easy it is to decide that my value in the world depends on the stuff I know. And Paul was a scholar. He had the ability to blow people away with the stuff he knew, the languages he could cite, the, the literature that he knew in his head. He didn't look stuff up. He could just quote it, not just the Bible, but Greek literature and philosophy as well. He was brilliant. And he tells you and me, knowledge puffs up. You rely just on knowledge, you become a proud, damaging person. Love is what builds up. He sets that out as his foundation. You want to be like Christ, then take this as set. Jesus knew more than all of us, but he lived in love. Love builds up. How do you apply that to this issue of food that's been sacrificed to idols? There is a Piece of knowledge, true doctrine. You can apply that true doctrine in a loving way or in an ungodly, mean, cruel way. You can be right and mean. Or you can be right and loving. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Verse 4 says, so then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, that there's no God but one. Verse 7, not everybody has this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that they eat sacrificial food. They think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. Since their conscience is weak, it's defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do eat and no better if we do. 
So he says that's the knowledge, that's the correct doctrine. He sides with those who say the food doesn't matter. And then he makes this point. Be careful, however, that, you, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what sacrificed the idol? So the weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. That is a profound, profound learning opportunity for you and me that the church affords. If I just sit at home and click on my computer, watch some religious podcasts, read some religious books, I may never experience what chapter 8 is trying to get me to experience. In order to experience what chapter 8 is asking me to experience, I have to be involved enough in a community that it asks me to set aside what I prefer and even things that I uh, have a right to exercise for the sake of my brothers and sisters. What will hurt them, what will damage them what will cause them pain and possibly drive them away. The only, that's, that's where I run into that problem is in a church community. And to the extent I allow the Holy Spirit to make me a church person, to that extent I will be drawn in the direction that Paul is talking to me about. So that more and more... I become concerned about what will help and build up my brothers and sisters. And I'll become less and less concerned about my own rights and my own preferences as I go about my church work. We are told of Jesus Christ that he had equality with God, but he didn't consider it something to be grasped. That's what Philippians 2 says to be exploited, to be, you know, held on to, but he emptied himself. He let it go, and he took on our form so he could do something important for us. He could save us. You and I have position. We have knowledge. We have power, relative power to others. And church life, in big ways and little ways, calls on us for the sake of those around us to give up what we have, power, knowledge, position, for the sake of those around us so that we can help them. When I was a child, I thought childish thoughts about those who were in power. I, you know, I thought my parents, you know, had all the power. They could just, you know, if I was a parent, I could just boss everybody around. I thought teachers could do that. I've been a parent. I realize that is not the way parenting works. I've been a teacher. I realize that's not the way being a teacher works. I thought preachers, you know, had all kinds of power. Being a preacher is not a very powerful position, it turns out. I spend 
I don't know, Jeremy, how much time do you spend thinking about what you want to preach? I spend my time thinking about what I think will help you. The elders spend their time. I've been in a lot of meetings. It takes a lot of time to do this, by the way. Thinking about what will help you. I know the Bible school teachers do the same thing. They're not thinking about, well, I wonder what I would like to have in Bible class for these two-year-olds today. They're thinking about what will actually help the two-year-old. Church will do that for you. Put aside what you want, what you desire, for the sake of those around you. That is, that is one of the ways that being in church will help you grow up into the image of Jesus Christ. It's what he did. He put off his, he emptied himself of the power and glory of being God so he could look like one of us. So that he could take care of us. And that's what church invites you to do over and over again. That's why we need church. It's one of many, many reasons why we need church. To be in the image of Christ means that I love you. And I put your needs above my wants. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He has sacrificed so that we can be saved. But once he saves us, he asks us to begin to allow his spirit to indwell us so that our lives can begin to look like his life. So that what starts to happen in your life begins to resemble what happened in his life. And that includes his sacrifice. He says to every one of us, there is a cross waiting for you. There is sacrifice waiting for you. There's going to come a time when you must give up what you prefer, what you want, even what you need for the sake of those around you that I have called you to love. That is a glorious thing to be asked to do. It is what you were built for by God your creator. And is what will take you into fellowship with that God when this life is over. If you need to respond to God's great invitation, if you need help or prayers or anything that we can help you with, or if you're ready to receive baptism, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.